The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So, Lord, thanks for your word. Thanks for your people. Thanks for the miracle it is for you to gather a people in a place to sing your praises, to remind each other as we sing of who you are and what you've done and where our hope is. And so, Lord, we're coming to you now asking you to magnify your name among us in our hearts by the power of your Spirit. We're asking you to show us what next steps of obedience there might be. We're asking you to show us what next steps of trust you want us to take by your Spirit. We're asking you to invite us into further freedom and further joy in Jesus. So come and do that through your word and by the power of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome. Feels like the gang's finally back together. It's fun to see all of you here. It's been a while since we had uh, quite so many in this room, and it's sweet to see our family gathered again. We've seen in Acts a uh, kind of strange, miraculous story after strange, miraculous story. If you're, if you're just joining us this fall, checking us out for the first time, you might want to go back and do a little reading from Acts chapter 1, verses 22 this week, and just get caught up and see the storyline. But, but one of the reasons that we just had this text read, and as Bill is reading through all these random details, it seems like maybe we wouldn't need to know, what we see is that the author includes these things to show us that these are real people. And these are real stories. This is actually a, a history account, not so much just a, a let's, let's look at the Bible story and take a lesson away account. This is a history account. This is our family history. This is the gospel really making its way throughout the world. And what we've tried to show in Acts, because Luke tries so hard to show us this in Acts, is that King Jesus is the one working and teaching and the driving force of the people of God is their delight in a Savior that saves and sustains and reigns over them even in the strangeness of the stories and even when they're persecuted. So we've mainly seen, and we'll continue to see for a little bit longer here, that the Jewish leaders have been going after these believers in Acts. And so they're kind of the, the villains in the story of Acts pretty regularly. But if we read beyond Acts in church history, what we would find is that soon after Acts ends, Nero would begin a savage and sustained persecution of believers. And that's important to realize because what it's showing us is that the gospel of Jesus will always cause waves in whatever culture, in whatever place it takes root, because it threatens the status quo. It, it's not normal. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And yet eventually what we see every single time throughout the story of history is that the gospel turns the world upside down. So if you were to read after Acts the, the story of Nero and the empire there, you would go, there's, there's no way Christianity makes it. Right? There's no way if there's a, a guy who's literally burning Christians as his torches at his parties, there's no way Christianity's going to make it. Who's going to keep believing? 
Who's going to keep admitting they're Christians? And yet, just a few hundred years later, the gospel had so turned the Roman Empire upside down that it was the, the national religion. So how did that happen? Did it happen by an angry revolt of Christians that matched the hatred of the savage and sustained persecution? That's not how it happened at all. It happened. The world was turned upside down. Rome was turned upside down. Our world, I believe, can be turned upside down by the self-giving and sustained love of Christ through believers to each other, their neighbors, and their families. The embodiment of Jesus Christ in his people wherever they are. And so being a Christian is both radical and unbelievably ordinary. It's radical and unbelievably ordinary. So let me tell you first why it's radical. It's radical because if you closely walk with Jesus, and when I say that, I mean you, you, you get up in the morning or at night, whenever you do it, you read your Bible because you want to see Jesus, you pray, you pray to him throughout the day, you just want to walk with him closely like he's a friend. If, if you walk closely with Jesus and you're listening to his voice, you will find yourself out of step with most of the norms of any society you live in. Not just ours. America's not the first society to get a little out of step with Jesus. There have been a lot before that. You will find you don't quite fit in with any worldly identity. Like, I like this group. Oh. Right? Or, or I like this group. Oh. Right? You just don't quite fit in. You'll find yourself with different priorities for your time, different priorities for your, for your money, Different priorities in your marriage, different priorities for your parenting, different priorities for your singleness. You'll find different priorities in all those things if you're walking closely with Jesus. And you will find that some will resent you or think you're foolish for those different priorities. This has happened in every culture and every generation where King Jesus has empowered his people as his witnesses for his name. For example, in our culture, you should find yourself out of step with the idea that comfort and instant gratification and self-expression are the ultimate morality or joy. You should just look out at the world and see that stuff and go, it just doesn't make sense. I, I can't go there with you. In other words, a walk with Jesus that takes up its cross to follow him in the self-giving love of others will always seem radical. You'll be radically out of step with the world around you. And yet it's ordinary. So why do I say it's ordinary? I say it's ordinary because sometimes we can read the book of Acts or, or hear these Bible stories and we can just think, well, how could I ever do that? And, and maybe you, you feel like a, a failure all the time because you're not doing big enough things for God. You're not, you're not doing enough. You're not doing that awesome thing that that person's doing. And you, you start doing the comparison game. Like, I need to be the one who does this, and I need to be the one who does that. And why I'm saying it's ordinary is because the way that this happened, like in Rome, was not mainly by some big acts by one or two Christians. It was mainly by this whole body of believers just living near Jesus, living close to Jesus. So I say it's ordinary because the main way you do this, the main way you take this countercultural allegiance with Jesus seriously is as you make your coffee in the morning. 
and set your schedule for the week and pray for God's help in what's coming. Or you do this as you pray with your kids at night. So what it looks like to be a radical Christian, pray with your kids next to their bed. So what you do as you welcome singles in our blood-bought family into your home for meals, when you see them sitting by themselves and say, come out to lunch with me, come to our home, be a part of our family. That's radical Christianity. Singles, you do this as you use your singleness to serve others. Not just more free time for you, but serving other believers, serving the blood-bought family. You do this as you set your alarm a half hour early to spend some time with Jesus in the morning. You do this as you work hard at your workplace. You're the happiest, hardest worker at your workplace, and you won't cut those ethical corners, but you will work hard for the sake of the name of Jesus. You do this as you give away money for the cause of Christ. You do this as you show up here on Sunday morning and sing. This is radical. Right? This feels normal to us. This is radical. Like, tell anybody else, right, come and sing praises to Jesus. They're just not going to show up. You do this as you love the kids of, or bring a meal to, or take 15 minutes to listen to the heartache of your neighbors across the street. You do this as you ask the barista or the waiter or waitress, how are you doing? And then you listen and care. You do this as you ask for forgiveness for sin from your family members or friends that you have failed. You do this as you plead with Jesus for strength to endure when your life is messy, confusing, and hard. All of those are radical acts of faith that are very ordinary. Very ordinary. In other words, being a radical Christian is not so much about the the what that you're doing. Like you need to change everything about your life. It's, It's who you're doing it with. Mainly Jesus in every moment of every day. Radical Christianity doesn't call you to add a list of things to your life. It calls you to follow Jesus every moment you walk through the ordinary moments of your life. If he calls you to go across the street, you go across the street. If he calls you to go across the ocean, you go across the ocean, following Jesus every step. If he calls you just to go back up to tuck your kids in one more time because they won't stay in the room, then you go and you tuck your kids in one more time. If he calls you to make a meal or invite a single person into your home, then you do that. That's what the radical, ordinary walk with Jesus looks like. It's not unattainable. It's not only for the spiritual heroes. It's the call of every single believer in the blood-bought family of God. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. Paul's very radical and ordinary walk with Jesus. And I'm just praying as we read through Acts that you wouldn't just feel like you're, you're looking at a story on a screen or you're being entertained by these stories, but you find yourself more and more in the story, more and more engaged, more and more, I can do that. I can speak the name of Jesus. I can just faithfully take the next step he's called me to so that the south suburbs would be filled with his teaching and turned upside down by ordinary, radical people. Okay, point number one, piety. Piety. So here is another story of Paul clashing with these Jewish leaders The Roman officials are once again confused about what in the world is going on. And so they call a meeting. 
and they ask Paul to speak in front of them and the Jewish leaders. The goal is we're going to try to figure out what is going on, who this guy is, and what all the, the fuss is about. And I want you to see about this point, in this point of the story, is just the piety of Paul. So kids, when I say piety, piety just means that Paul lives every moment of his life trying to do what Jesus wants him to do. That's what piety is. That's what reverence is. We just want to spend every moment of our lives doing what Jesus wants us to do. This is a good way for you kids to start thinking about how you hang out with your friends and how you do your homework and how you listen to your parents or grandparents or how you spend time with your brothers and sisters. How can I show that I love Jesus right now? How can I do what Jesus would like me to do right now? And we see Paul do that in a few ways in these first 10 verses. First, we see him talk about how he's tried to live his life early in the story. He says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Kids, I'll explain to you again. Your conscience is that voice inside of you that tells you what's right or wrong. So your conscience is. And so when our consciences are working how they're supposed to, They're always telling us to obey Jesus even when it's hard. So I'm saying that Paul is saying, in my conscience, that voice that tells me what's right or wrong, I've always tried to do as best I can what I think Jesus is telling me to do. So Paul is saying he's lived his life knowing that his life is on full display before God. He's living his life before God and that he's tried to do his best by the power of the Spirit to faithfully go wherever Jesus tells him to go and to do whatever Jesus tells him to do. So Paul's piety, one way we see Paul's piety is in his obedience to King Jesus. His reverence to King Jesus. He has tried to faithfully follow his Savior and King. And Paul gets hit in the face right after. So you might wonder why. Well, the reason is that these guys are ultra-sensitive. <laughs> That's just the reality. They're just ultra-sensitive. They want to be in control. They want to be in charge. And so we hear Paul saying, well, I'm trying to live before Jesus like I'm supposed to, but this probably comes across as an indictment against the Jewish leaders. Here I am, <laughs> clear conscience before God. Well, when you're the ones that drag this guy in and have tried to beat him up about 20 times, doesn't look so good for you anymore, right? This is a clash of authority again, right? He is saying he's lived faithfully before God. They are making a very clear claim that they don't think he has lived a very clear life before God. He is questioning with his statement their authority and their being in step with God. And so the high priest has Paul struck This was something they would do when they thought the honor of God was at stake, when blasphemy was happening. They'd they'd strike the person and stop the comment. So look at verses 3 to 5. Paul is always uh, just dancing around words here. It says, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul is not exactly a passive guy in this setting. 
he actually curses the high priest. That's what it is. It's, it's a curse on him. God will strike you for striking me. God is with me. He says that he looks good on the outside, but that he doesn't really care about God at all on the inside. He pretends to follow the law, but as Paul struck contrary to the law. So Paul is indicting the high priest. The only problem is that Paul doesn't know he's talking to the high priest. So we don't, we don't really know how Paul doesn't know that. There's actually, I think, 14 different options in the commentaries I read about why Paul may or may not know who this high priest is. But for some reason, he doesn't know that the high priest is the one that gave this order. But what we do see is Paul change his position quickly. He just said, I have a clear conscience. What's a clear conscience? Living before God in light of what God says to do. I want to do what God tells me to do. And this turns into exhibit A. He says, I didn't know he was the high priest. And then what does he do? What is driving Paul's life? What is driving Paul's actions? The word of God. Right away he quotes Exodus 22 that says, you shouldn't speak evil of a ruler. Now, was what happened to Paul fair or right? No. (laughs) We're supposed to see that wasn't fair or right. Was Paul actually dishonoring or blaspheming God? Absolutely not. He was saying what's, what's true. Should Paul have been struck in accordance with the law? No, he shouldn't have been struck. But notice that Paul doesn't begin by justifying himself or defending himself. How, how many times do you justify or want to justify or defend yourself against sin when someone has really sinned against you? Maybe they, they said something that hurt your feelings or maybe they, they said something that made you feel dumb. Paul just got punched in the face by this guy. And his immediate reaction is not defense or anger. His immediate reaction is citing the word of God and submitting himself to it even though he's been mistreated. I just had to ask myself, is this my first instinct? When someone maligns or mistreats me or hurts me, even when we've been mistreated or maligned or unjustly treated, do we still seek to honor the Word of God in that situation in our own hearts and actions first? Or do we give ourselves a pass on piety when we're persecuted? What do we do? What's our initial, what's your initial heart reaction This is supposed to show us that we can trust the Lord to carry out justice. The Lord is just. He will carry out justice, either on the cross or in hell eternally. He will carry out justice. And one of those has to be good enough for us. If if hell isn't enough punishment for those who malign you, you need to do more than hell to them. That's a heart issue. And if those who malign you of forgiveness on the cross... As justice isn't enough for you, there's a a heart thing going on with us. We are free. I want you to see this in Paul. We are free. Say it one more time in the culture we live in. We are free to let go of bitterness and anger and simply submit to Jesus knowing that He knows what it means more than we ever will to be unjustly persecuted, maligned, and mistreated, and He works for His people. He'll stand with you. Paul realizes soon that there are two groups of religious leaders here. Paul is wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. 
He knows this is there's Sadducees and there's Pharisees in the room with him that have come together to try to accuse him. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection and in a greater focus on the supernatural, like angels and spirits as a part of the Christian faith or a part of the religious faith, the Jewish faith. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection and would have been suspicious of the supernatural. So Paul cites his real and true reason for being on trial. This is, this is the real reason, but he says it in a way to make sure that everyone hears it. He's on trial because of the hope of the resurrection. He even says, I'm a Pharisee. That sounds like a weird thing for Paul to say, doesn't it? I'm a Pharisee. I think what he's saying is I'm a Pharisee in the truest form. I really believe in the hope of the resurrection. I actually know the one who's been resurrected from the dead. He talks to me. He reveals himself to me. I'm the truest form. I know the true hope of the resurrection and the true power of the supernatural spirit. And we know the Pharisees don't buy the Jesus part. But the Pharisees do like his theology better here than the Sadducees. And suddenly, they worry, if we persecute this guy, who believes some of the same stuff we do, are we going to give the the Sadducees a political leg up on us? Like, they'll be able to point and go, you guys obviously don't believe it either. He said that's why he was on trial, and you persecuted him. So the religious leaders, who are always motivated by their power and prestige, whether fighting each other or persecuting Christians, get into a big fight with each other that it says gets violent. And this gives Paul the opening he needs. The argument gets violent, and the Romans again drag away Paul to the only safe place for him, which is jail, to keep him from getting injured. I want you to notice one more statement made in verse 9 before we go to the next point. In verse 9, they declare over Paul, we find nothing wrong in this man. Does that have echoes for you at all? of the trials of Jesus. This has echoes of the innocence that was declared of Jesus over and over again in his trials. And it will become a theme, actually, in these last chapters of Acts. Over and over again, he didn't do anything wrong. He, he's innocent. Why is he here? Right in the next couple of chapters, someone will say, if he hadn't appealed, we would have just let him go. <laughs> he's innocent. This is a theme. King Jesus was innocent, and yet he died for our sins. Paul will be declared innocent over and over again, and will eventually die to spread the gospel of the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. He is bearing in his body, filling up in his body, the wounds of Jesus, the sufferings of Christ. A radical, ordinary life with walking with Jesus means piety and obedience, and piety quickly in repentance when you've gotten it wrong. It means piety when it's easy and piety when you are treated unjustly as you seek to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Point number two, presence. So look at verses 11 to 15. The only way this piety is possible is when the people of Jesus know their king is with them, he's for them, And he will never leave them or forsake them, and he will bring them to himself. That's the only way this kind of piety is possible. So we don't want to get the idea, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Work harder. Do better. We want to get the idea, trust Jesus. He's with you. Look at verse 11. 
The following night, after all this happened, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The Lord stood by him. And the Lord stands by all his people. We have a God who promises to never leave us or forsake us, not based on any of our own performance. It's the only religion out there like that. We have a Savior that promises to be a very present help, to be with us to the end of the age, to approach his throne boldly, to pour out our heart before him. That kind of God who says, I'm with you. I'm in it with you. And I proved I was in it with you and I came and dwelt among you and lived the perfect life you couldn't live and died the death you deserved to die and rose again to conquer death. Don't you see? I'm with you. This is a radical reality that gives us courage to walk in piety through our ordinary lives with Jesus. How, how else would you be obedient in the hard things if you didn't know this? Whatever it is you're going through in life right now, If you trust in Jesus, He will stand by you. He is standing by you. I want you to see one other thing that's supposed to encourage us in these five verses. Notice that while Jesus stands with Paul, He makes him a promise. I'm with you, but then He makes him a promise. You will testify in Rome. That's a promise, right? He's telling him what's going to happen. I'm with you. Take courage. We're going to Rome. I'm with you. Take courage. We're going to Rome. Right? It's going to be a windy path to Rome, we'll find out, but that's where we're headed. Now look in verses 12 to 15. In verses 12 to 15, we see more than 40 other people make a promise to, to each other, an oath. What's their promise? We will not eat or drink until we murder Paul. We are against him. He should be afraid He's not going anywhere. Right? They're going to end it here. He's not going to slip through our fingers again. We're not going to let him get away again. We're going to make an oath. We're going to bribe whoever we have to bribe. We're going to have any kind of plot we need to have. He's dying now. We're not eating and drinking until this guy is done. That's an oath, a promise. Here's Jesus making a promise. Here they are making a promise. And only one of these promises can be kept. Right? They're, They're... Completely against each other. They're at odds with each other. Either Jesus keeps his promise to get Paul to Rome, or these evil men keep their promise to kill him. They both can't happen. So the question that this text is putting in front of us is, who is stronger? Who is more faithful? Who should the church fear? God or man? It's putting it right out there for us. And we're meant to see in these five verses that our king, who promises to be with us, who stands by us, is stronger than anyone else. His plans and his purposes can't be thwarted by 40-some guys. Isn't this just what Jesus said to his disciples in the Great Commission as he told them to go and make disciples? He said, all authority has been given to me. In other words, I'm stronger. (laughs) No one can stop the mission to make disciples. I talked a few weeks ago about how on the playground, when I was a little kid, one of the things we'd always do is say, like, my dad's stronger than your dad. Right? And, and I don't know why we did that, but there's something about the strength of our dads that we just wanted to boast in. And we're supposed to see here, our dad is the strongest. Our father is the strongest. Nothing stops his mission. 
And then what was the other thing he said in the Great Commission? I have all authority in what? I am with you, even to the end of the age. In other words, I'm powerful and I am present. I have authority and I'm with you. The presence and power of God empower our piety. The presence and power of God are what empower our piety, our obedience, our boldness. That's what Acts teaches us. Jesus will send His Holy Spirit so that we can go and be His witnesses. Jesus will be with us, reminding us of His beauty and worth so that we desire to go and make disciples come what may. We don't earn the presence and power of God with our piety. Don't ever get these backwards. We don't earn God's presence or earn God's power with our piety. Instead, God's presence and power and promises come and they sweep over us and they empower us to live bold, sacrificial, self-giving, obedient lives. I mean, how many times in your Christian life, if you're honest with yourself and with this room, have you just been a fool and then seen God use you for the sake of his name? I'm a pastor. It happens like all the time. I'm not kidding. It happens all the time where I'm just a fool in one area and just disobedient and unkind. And then someone says, oh, it just ministered to me so much. I'm like, I have no idea how that happened except the presence and power of God. His saving power and then His sustaining presence and power motivate our piety because He teaches our hearts that He's worthy and He draws us back to seek His forgiveness and then sends us back out in His mercy Again, point number three is providence. So we walk in piety with Jesus by His presence and power. And as we're walking forward, what is left for us to do? Trust His providence. Trust His providence. Kids, the word providence simply means that King Jesus is always working to bring about His purposes and keep His promises. Providence means that King Jesus is always working to bring about his purposes, and he will always work to keep his promises. And so he'll do whatever it takes, sometimes in surprising, unexpected ways to keep his promises. And that's what we see in this story in these last 20 verses. I mean, the the number of things that happen here in the details are meant to just show us God's working in all these details. God's at work in all these details. He just promised, I'm going to get you to Rome. They just promised, we're going to kill you. Now watch what God does. Watch what God does. Somehow, we're not told how Paul's nephew is apparently allowed to hang out with the 40 guys who want to kill him. And so he overhears the plot of the 40 men to kill Paul. And then he goes and says, Uncle, <laughs> it's not good for you out there. There's 40 guys and they're going to kill you. And they're not, they're not going to eat or drink until they do. So I think they're serious. So Paul says, well, you should probably go tell someone about that. And so he goes and he tells the tribune about it. And frankly, I think the tribune is probably sick of the situation, right? He doesn't want this blood on his hands. He doesn't want more riots in his streets. He doesn't want this problem anymore. And so he sends Paul away by night with about 500 Roman soldiers to ensure his safety. And he sends him to Felix, who was the governor of the Judean region at that time. He sends a, leader, a letter to Felix who would have been the next higher up in command. And so what you're going to keep seeing in the last chapters of Acts is like, we don't know what to do with him, bump him up. We don't know what to do with him, bump him up. And eventually he's going to talk to Caesar and testify to the gospel to Caesar. But he sends a letter to Felix, 
Felix receives Paul in Caesarea. He puts him in jail and says, I'll give you a hearing once your accusers arrive. So Paul has escaped the plot and arrives safely to Felix as a first step on his way towards Rome. And we're supposed to see whose promise came true. Whose promise came true. I just want to ask you in, in, your, in your life, because I'm so guilty of this, in your life, are you open, are your eyes open to the way that God uses ordinary things like nephews and rulers and soldiers to accomplish his purposes? Have you ever prayed some, about something like really, really hard? Just like, Lord, do this, please do this. I'm so burdened for this. And you don't know which way it's going to go, and then it happens. And all you feel is relief and not thanksgiving. (laughs) It's like all of a sudden it just kind of happened. Well, thank goodness it happened that way. It turned out okay. What if that was God (laughs) answering your prayers? If you asked someone and you said, hey, will you bring chips and dip to our Super Bowl party? And then they brought chips and dips. You just go, thank God they brought it. Or do you think maybe it had to do with your asking? And we're supposed to see that over and over again in the book of Acts. That God is working in the details, sovereignly ordaining the details in response to the people's prayers. We haven't seen it as often in these last chapters, but it's because he pounded it into our heads in the first five chapters. What do God's people do? They worship, they read the Bible, they fellowship, and they pray their faces off, and then God responds to that in his mercy and his grace. So let's tie some themes together now. What is our calling? What is Paul's calling in every situation? Follow Jesus wherever he calls us. What empowers that calling, that piety? The presence and promises of Jesus. How will those promises be kept? How will he keep his promises? The powerful providence of Jesus. He'll work in all the details. He'll do whatever it takes to keep his promises, and he'll be with us every step of the way. That's what we're seeing in this text. And notice, God's always doing multiple things. His mind and his ability to keep things in order so much bigger than ours. While he's keeping this short-term promise to Paul to get him to Rome, to spare his life, he's also keeping the long-term promise to empower witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit to carry his name to the ends of the earth. He's doing both at the same time. To testify to Jesus in Rome means the gospel beginning to run as far as the human mind could even comprehend in those days. Rome was it. Rome was the world. And so to get to Rome and testify of Jesus in the minds of the writer of this book is like, we made it. God is accomplishing his purposes. The gospel is going forth. Rome was the hub for a massive empire where the gospel would be taken by amazing architecture of their roads and cities and the amazing architecture of God's providence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's happening. And that long-term promise was kept. And we see it in this room as the gospel not only eventually turned the whole Roman Empire upside down on its head, but the gospel traveled all the way to Lakeville, Minnesota. We keep saying that, but I want you to draw the line because it's there. The gospel made it all the way from there. This, this place, this, this building, this thing, everything we're witnessing is a direct result of God's keeping his promises to his people. How did it overturn Rome? Rome? How did the gospel? How will it overturn Lakeville? King Jesus empowers his people to walk with him in radical 
ordinary trust and obedience. King Jesus empowers his people to treasure his promises, walk in obedience in his presence, and then trust his providence. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. I was talking to someone this week who said, I just want to see us take over Lakeville or the south suburbs. Amen. That'd be great with the gospel and humble, servant-hearted love of our neighbors and by the bedside of our kids. And as we plan and we pray and as we, we join co-ops and we go to soccer games and we go to the coffee shop and talk to the barista and as we, we do all these ordinary things, but we do them with Jesus, eyes always open for what he's calling us to do. He will keep his promise to spread his name through his people by the empowering presence of his spirit. He will do that as you seek to love him with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself in your ordinary day-to-day life in your home and at your workplace. Your life is not boring. Your job is not boring. You can get a different one if you want to, but it's not boring. Right? Your work is not meaningless. Nothing you do is meaningless if you do it with Jesus. If you're in a place where you're just going, I don't, I don't know. I know what difference I'm making. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't, I don't know where to go or what to do. You need something bigger? No, you don't. You just need a bigger vision of Jesus. That he's with you and he means to use you. And according to Acts 17, he determines the dwelling places and the boundaries that people might feel their way to God. So start prayer walking your neighborhood and prayer walking the office of your buildings or prayer walking your Zoom call, however you do that. And start asking God, use me for the sake of your name. My life is not boring. I'm with Jesus. He will do that as you seek to love those who love you and bless you. And he will do this as you seek to love those who curse you and persecute you. So let's bow our heads for just a few moments and talk to Jesus. I'll just ask you a few questions and just have you talk to him about it. First, if you're in this room and you're not trusting in Jesus, just want to ask you, to consider him. Consider all the other things that your heart's been running after, all the other places you've been trying to find joy, all the other places you've been looking for salvation. And this morning, I just want you to consider Jesus. Consider his saving work for your sins. Consider being free from guilt and shame. Consider walking with him the rest of your life and all of eternity. And if that wouldn't be a better, a better way to find full joy... If you're here this morning and you you are trusting in Jesus, are there any areas right now where your conscience is warning you that you're out of step with King Jesus? Are there any areas where you know you need to repent, but you feel your heart hard against the word of Jesus? Would you talk to him about those things? now I just want to take, have you take a couple minutes and just in your mind, look at the details of your life. 
and try to think and identify some way that God has worked for your good. For your salvation, for your sustaining. I just want you to take a minute or two and just enjoy God's promises being yes to you. Because of Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you for those of us who are trusting you. We thank you for your, your kindness to us, that you saved us by dying on a cross for our sins. We thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit to dwell in us. Thank you for your empowering, comforting, encouraging, convicting presence with us. And, Lord, as we come to eat and drink with you, I just pray that we'd be helped by your Spirit to lay down any sins at the foot of the cross, lay down any bitterness or anger of how we've been mistreated at the foot of the cross. Lay it all down at the foot of the cross and remember that all your promises have been yes and amen to us. And that this would be a meal of confession and comfort and encouragement that you are still for us, that we can come back to you out of our sins and out of our shame and back in to all of your promises to us. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.